Welcome. I'm Melissa Durda, and this is Synergo's Cultivate the Soul podcast. Stories of purpose-driven philanthropy from around the world. Over this series, we explore together the intersection of contemplative practices, spirituality, philanthropy, and social impact. Join us as we dive into the personal journey of each guest and what they have discovered about the role of inner work on one's capacity to change the world. To learn more about each of our guests and view our full episode list, please visit synergos.org slash podcast. My name is Kim Samuel. I am the founder and chief belonging officer of the Samuel Center for Social Connectedness. I cultivate my soul by working every day to build a world that is less isolated and more connected. In short, a world where everyone belongs. Today we are joined by Kim Samuel, an activist, educator, and movement builder Kim Samuel is the founder and chief belonging officer of the Samuel Center for Social Connectedness, named in honor of her late father. She is president of the Samuel Family Foundation, is visiting scholar at the Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative, and the first ever Fulbright Ambassador for Diversity and Social Connectedness. Her first book, On Belonging, Finding Connection in an Age of Isolation, was released two weeks ago by Abrams Press. So, Kim, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. So happy to have you. Thank you, Melissa. It's, it's actually wonderful to be doing this podcast and even more so to be interviewed by you because we go back quite a long way. I know. I'm so happy to see you both today and to have you in my life. As we get started, I'd like to ask you to share a memory or a story from your childhood that was instrumental in shaping your view on what matters. If I could go back to two of them that just popped into my head, and, and one of them has to do with a broom and sweeping. When I was uh, growing up, my family had a, a farm, and we had horses on the farm and a lot of other animals, and it was just the most wonderful place to spend endless summer days that extended 365 days of the year. But I also remember the lessons that my parents were always trying to teach and reinforce to me and my two siblings. And responsibility was right up there, along with chores, presented as doing chores. I remember a day that this happened, and never happened twice, where we were done for the day and we'd been riding ponies and with our friends and pretty idyllic, right? We were turning out the lights and in our barn. And my dad came up and he reminded me and my siblings and our friends to sweep up the barn before you leave. And I remember him saying, if you ignore your responsibilities, they just become someone else's problem to deal with. And that really stuck in my mind and been part of the way I've tried to uh, live my life ever since, which is particularly in the work I'm doing now, when I write and talk about rights, we really need to start with a discussion about responsibilities and accountability. And the second one is dazzling. I'm going to take you to the sky. When I was 10 years old in Toronto, I went on a class field trip to the McLaughlin Planetarium at the Royal Ontario Museum. You get to look up the whole time and 
and see the planets and see how they rotate and so on. And and I got the idea there, which is frankly what I end the book on, which is this idea that it's all connected. It's not how close Earth is or isn't to the sun, which is something I address at the end of my book. It's about being connected. That's much more important than the order and placement of things. Well, there's a couple from childhood to get us started. Those are beautiful. I can picture both of those stories, both being in the barn after enjoying the horse riding, as well as just the awe of looking up at the stars. So you mentioned that feeling of all connected. And my next question, do you feel connected to your own purpose through this work that you do? And if you say you do, or if you feel you do, what would you say your purpose is and how did you come to know it? Well, I would say that it is my purpose and my life's work to build belonging and to build safe spaces for people to connect and be their true, authentic selves and show up as their whole self. My purpose for decades has been learning about social isolation and then working to build its opposite belonging. I'm really here to shine a light where it's needed, giving voice to the voiceless and drive a conversation forward and forward to where it should have been all along, which is laser focused on belonging. A very, very, very ancient idea. Thank you. Is there something that inspires you in this journey that you're on? Is there a person who has inspired you? People inspire me every day, Melissa, including the conversation that we're having right now, because we are equally in this and really listening to one another, although disproportionately listening to me. I apologize for that. There's two moments, and one of them happened in 1997 when my father, Ernie Samuel, had a brain injury that was really out of the blue. He then spent three months in a coma. And he woke up very, very, very slowly. And the better he got, and by better, I mean being able to regain as much of his functionality across different areas, the better he got, the sadder he got. And I didn't really understand that at first. So then a couple of ideas occurred to me. One is that it was not the disabilities that were making him sad was the way that people were treating him because of his disabilities. And he was acutely aware of that. And I would now put the word othering into that. And then the second part of that is is really more a visual image. I kept seeing in my mind's eye every day a figure sitting alone at the bottom of a dark well. He doesn't and never did look like my dad and doesn't look male or female. It's a human figure. But imagine what it would be like if physically we were sitting alone at the bottom of a well. That would be isolation. And we could also add loneliness in there. And we could add lack of inclusion in there. And we could add maybe shame and and humiliation in there. A lot of things might come up, although I suppose there's someone who could be very happy at the bottom of a deep, dark well. I haven't met them yet. So this image of sitting alone at the bottom of a well has stuck with me ever since. And it means isolation and it doesn't have anything to do really with a physical well. It has to do with feeling as if you are in the bottom of a well, which makes everything that you do much, much harder. So that was 1997. And the second one is 2002. 
because of uh, Peggy Delaney and Synergos, I got to meet Nelson Mandela. And many years later, again, because of Peggy and Synergos, I'd met Gresham Michelle and she and I became friends. And so the first thing she asked me was, how have you been since your daddy died? It'd been two years by then. And I said, I'd been doing well and that I missed him every day, as I believe everyone can relate to. But I also said that in terms of my work, it was all turned now to social isolation. And that related specifically to work with Synergos and others about alleviating poverty, or I should say eradicating poverty, because ultimately that's what we're here to do. And I looked to Nelson Mandela and I said, of course, you would know all about isolation. And he said, no, I've never been isolated. And that really kind of set me almost rolling backward. And it's not even in Robben Island. And he said, no, because in Robben Island, we were brothers working together with the same purpose. I was never alone. And then he went on to talk about where he had seen isolation in a child in a village with AIDS who no one will clothe or love or care for or feed. And he then summarized, I have seen isolation and it is very bad. And that was a moment not with fireworks or celebrations or beams of light. It was simply a quiet affirmation within myself of, oh, okay, this is what I'm going to be working on for the rest of my life. Those are such touching and powerful stories. Thank you so much for sharing them. And I can see where that inspiration comes from. I'd love to hear more about how you've translated that into action. So you're the founder and chief belonging officer of the Samuel Center for Social Connectedness. How did that come about? What are you doing through those efforts? Sure. Happy to answer that question. The Samuel Center for Social Connectedness, SCSC, was formed in 2017 with me, but also with several of my students at McGill University, where I was teaching at the time which I think is important to state. This is co-creation, collaboration from the very start. And I named the center in honor of my father because he'd inspired me so much and he was no longer with us. So I thought maybe this was a path in some mysterious way that we could walk together. The aim of the center is to build connectedness within and between communities through partnerships, research, programming, learning initiatives, and advocacy. In terms of our own, say, homegrown in-house programs, we have uh, Common Threads, which brings together recently arrived asylum seekers with us and with a lot of people in the local community that can be helpful in terms of being translators, in terms of helping a family to find where to live, to find out about schools, healthcare, meet other people, and so on. Because what we learned was that once asylum seekers arrive, they have a very short time, on average three weeks, before they're out on their own. And that's a huge gap. So that seemed to me all about social connectedness. But I would like to point out that that entire concept came from a former student and then a fellow starter of the Center for Social Connectedness. And I think that that's quite important. Uh, just sorry, I should say, I'll go back and say Jessica Farver, who's now doing incredible work on reaching people with TB, particularly Indigenous people. 
who are underserved, to say the very least. So I guess I'll go on to say, inspired by my students, I decided to create a social connectedness fellowship program. The first year that I taught, it was 2016. So the first year that we had social connectedness fellows was 2017. I had 35 students in 2016, and I had 27 social connectedness fellows that summer. That was a bit too many. But I would like to say that, and now we have about 10 or 12, which is the right number every year. This year, we had over 400 applicants, mostly people working toward various degrees. But also for the last couple of years, we've had people that we consider equal scholars that maybe haven't gone on to higher education, including people with intellectual disabilities. And they partner with our partners. So Synergos Institute, Human Rights Watch, Partners in Health, and I'm probably uh, leaving out many, many, many. Uh, I know I am. But to say that they work between us and one of our partners and collaborators and do wonderful uh, research and outreach for a summer. And that is really the underlying building block for what we're starting this year, which is a belonging research lab as a way to get some of this wonderful work out and as well as partnering with organizations and universities. That one's just getting started. We have a global symposia program, which began in 2014 before the center. It's about bringing people from around the world, some of whom don't know that they're engaged in social connectedness or overcoming social isolation or building belonging, but they are. There's a lot of stories like that in my book. It's very good in terms of sessions and bringing forward research and best practices and so on. But, but honestly, Melissa, I feel like the biggest value every two years when we do this is about giving people a chance again to meet in a safe space and to share experiences and to find out what we all find out in groups where we think, what do I have in common with that person that we have a lot, but we intentionally have to create those spaces. And we also have guess a website and guest blogs and thought leadership and partnership with Synergo South Africa, which has been going on way before the center started, which is to focus on what I call circles in within circles. So we have Synergo South Africa and a lot of other of Synergo's partners and collaborators who are all doing this work, but together, together can be a much stronger force for advocacy and making sure that those who should most be involved in shaping policies are in that room. And again, bringing together others. We've worked with Human Rights Watch on campaigns uh, such as older people's rights, such as ending shackling. Imagine this, that thousands of people, more often than not, people with psychosocial disabilities are shackled around the world. More often than not, people just walk by as if it's a normal thing. With Special Olympics, we've been partnering for a very long time on education, youth, family, and again, lifting up to other audiences, this simple ethos that we all have a right to belong by simple virtue of the fact that we are born. Those are really powerful examples. And on behalf of Synergos, being a member of the Synergos team, we really value the partnership, this longstanding partnership that we've had with you. We've learned a lot together around social connectedness, belonging. So that's been such a rich and important experience. 
maybe I'll just ask to share just so we can understand a little bit more. Maybe is there one story where we can learn a little bit more in depth about what does belonging look like or social connectedness? Maybe one of your fellows, what they're doing research on or any story. I'm sure you have a lot of them over all these years. The example that I'd like to give today is the example of the friendship bench in Zimbabwe and now in many other countries as well. The friendship bench was founded several years ago by a man called Dixon Chibanda. Dixon is a psychiatrist in a country where there proportionately is about one psychiatrist for every 10 million people. So you can see that there's a, a real problem there. He kept noticing over and over again that he wasn't able, among his own patients, to be there when he needed to be, let alone the needs of many others who couldn't get the care that they needed. And one day, there was a patient of his, and we'll call her Erica. And Erica lived way out in a rural area, and her mother was desperately reaching out to Dixon to try to, to figure out how they could get there and get the care that they needed in Harare didn't make it in time, and Erica took her life. And I think that that was either the moment or one of the moments that led him to take action. The action he took was to create a program on a bench where older women mostly are called uh, grandmothers. You don't have to be a grandmother officially to be on the bench, but older women elders. And they were trained in an, a number of sessions in terms of mental health, and there's a lot of pedagogy on this as well. It works on a park bench or a community bench or anywhere a bench would naturally easily be for people in communities to go to, whether or not there was a hospital nearby. So already we see the stigma brought way down. And on the bench, you will get a number of sessions many, but then that has to stop, again, part of the protocol of care for mental health needs. And from what I've witnessed also, sometimes just really practical needs, like how to get childcare, which can be very stressful if you don't have that. Now, hundreds and hundreds of people have been helped on the bench, and some may need then to go on to be referred to care by uh, doctors and professionals with a lot more training. But this makes a giant bridge. And you know, Melissa's Synergos's ethos is really that of bridging leadership. This is bridging leadership. What I find even more fascinating than what I've shared with you is what happens after the bench. Well, here's what happens after the bench. And even if you've only been on the bench one time, you are part of a circle. And that circle will meet regularly in your village, in the area, in your township, wherever you are. And it's not only for the grandmothers, it's also for anyone who has been on the bench. Why is that important? Because people show up there largely because they're having emotional struggles, struggles with mental health, and no one's saying, well, you need to get better or well or address this. And then, you know, we'd like you to come and share your story. No, that is not what's being said. What's being said is, you have a lot to share now. You are now part of a community. And so when the groups get together, what happens is the grandmothers and those on the bench who are never called patients come together along with other members of the community and sit in a circle. And together, 
everyone identifies what's the biggest problem to be solved at that time. And then they all go about solving it. And I think that's just extremely important for some of the things that I pointed out already, right? It serves a big need, addresses a problem. It's something that can be easily scaled and replicated without ever losing touch with the centrality of the local people, the village, the bench, and so forth. And as well, I only really mentioned Dixon in the beginning, and he would understand why. He started it. It was his idea. There's also some other incredible people that helped to get this going and and are still there. But the focus is on the grandmothers and on the others that come onto the bench. And the only way this works, I would submit the only way that building belonging works is to round that circle. And I call it rounding the circle so that you have somebody who has this brilliant idea and makes it work and we honor him, but we do not leave him on top of the mountain. I don't know why we always leave designated heroes on top of the mountain, but we do not taking into account how many people help that person along the way and how the work, if it's good, will get taken forward by many, many others. And everyone has an equal role to play and the circle rounds itself. That's a beautiful story and such a simple framework because we can all play our part. I love the elders or the grandmothers are able to also place themselves in a role of helping others. And then you have this support network, the circle that you just talked about. So it's a beautiful model. And it also helps to understand some simple solutions that can be done in terms of creating belonging. I would add to that trust. I didn't name trust. None of this could happen without trust. And it's the same with Partners in Health, where, as you know, Partners in Health runs programs around the world now more than ever after the the passing of Paul Farmer earlier this year, I think has really resulted in everyone who's part of PIH recommitting to this. But it's what happens in the community, the community health workers that makes the difference because that's where the trust is. And that's why people show up. You can't work with people that don't trust you. Very simple, right? But the building of trust also at the heart of Synergos, it's not simple, isn't it? Is it? It's intricate work to make it happen. Yeah, it's an essential element to this. So you've just launched your first book. Tell us about the book. Thank you for asking about that. It took about six decades (laughs) to do it. My book is called On Belonging, Finding Connection in an Age of Isolation. And in it, I examine belonging across four core dimensions. And the first is subjective and personal. And this is what I call this four P's, easy to remember. People is the first one where someone may feel belonging alone in a room and others may feel alone surrounded by people. And I guess that really points out to how individual all of this is. But I also want to say that, and I'll go through these four Ps, but reciprocity is the key to all of this, right? We are always givers and receivers. And I think it's really important to know that. And in the book, you'll find incredible stories and people that have gone through the harshest trials you can imagine and have come through not only with their own deep sense of belonging, but also the ability to bring that to others. And there is not one ounce of victimhood. That's very important to me. The right to belong, which I mentioned to you, is is very much at the heart of the book and the question of asking people, what is it that we value? 
And that's our interrelationships with one another. The second is place, our sense of place, which for me often means in nature. But it can also mean what should a city look like to you? How do you like the architecture of walking between skyscrapers with no sunlight as opposed to the architecture of much lower buildings and green space and uh, as little gentrification as possible? And power for me is really something that I think should be reimagined as empowerment, not a vertical power, which always, again, leaves many, many out and without it. So it's about how do we use our agency and choice and our voice to affect the economic and political systems in which we live, and, and most importantly, to bring those into the center of those circles who need to be there. And purpose, well, sense of purpose, the idea that there's something bigger than ourselves. For me, this, my work is, is really my, my sense of purpose. And, and having become a grandmother last year, well, I guess that's probably the sense of purpose in my heart. To end on this, Sense of purpose does not need to mean, I'm going to climb Mount Everest. I'm going to solve this world problem. It's really about showing up in your community as your whole self and having that community believe you when you say who you are and honor and respect you for your gifts. I love that definition. And I love your framework. Thanks so much for sharing it. So everyone needs to read your book and learn more and to hear the stories. So for my final question, I'd like to ask you, what is your ultimate vision for your work? My ultimate vision is to invite millions of people to join me, or even one or two or three, to create a peaceful revolution around belonging, remind us what we have forgotten, and use that framework as a way to lift up not only neglected human rights, but also neglected people peaceful revolution. Only that. Well, we all here at Scenario support you wholeheartedly, and we'll do our best to help you spread that message. How can people learn more so they can buy your book? And is there a website where they can learn more about what you do? Yes. Thank you for asking that. It's onbelongingbook.com. Onbelongingbook.com. Also, if anyone would like to, I would really welcome them to go to the SC website as well, which is scscglobal.org, scscglobal.org. Perfect. We will check it out. So Kim, thanks so much for coming. Thanks for sharing your stories and this work that you're doing. We're just so thrilled to have you as a partner and to have you on this podcast. Thank you. It's been really wonderful to be here and have this conversation. Really appreciate it. What I loved about this conversation with Kim is to hear her personal stories and experiences that brought her to dedicate her life to belonging and social connectedness. 